The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. It's Wednesday, February the 24th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. With me today are political correspondent Harry McGee, and we're going to be joined in a few minutes' time by Claire Daly, a member of the European Parliament for the Dublin constituency. But first of all, Harry, the government's revamped Living with Covid plan was launched by Michal Martin yesterday evening, and we are not going to rehash the details of it because they were pretty much all flagged well in advance anyway, and our listeners can find any information they need on irishtimes.com. But I did want to focus on why yesterday's address to the nation ended up being seen as much as a as an exercise in salvaging some credibility as anything else. Something has gone very wrong with the government's messaging on all this over the last 10 days or so. Yeah, we were kind of expecting uh, James Joyce's Ulysses last night and instead we got uh, Beckett and Beckett at his, mo- at his most uh, minimal. I mean, what was striking about the, about the uh, report or about the new plan last night was its lack of detail. Micheál Martin made a reference uh, during the speech. He referenced Boris Johnson saying the most important thing for him was data, not dates. But the striking thing to me uh, in any instance, Hugh, was that we neither got data nor dates. There were very few details besides those that have been very well flagged already. And I just think in terms of communications, I think there was there were a couple of mishaps and cock-ups in relation to communication over the past 10 days. And most of them seem to have emanated from the Taoiseach himself, Micheál Martin, who did a huge round of interviews uh, with both the printed media and the broadcast uh, media and uh, in one or two of the interviews, he, uh, he, he, he went off message or he said too much or he uh, said something that created controversy. He did an interview, for example, with the Irish Mirror when he, when he suggested that lockdown would continue for another nine weeks. And then he did an interview with Radio Nagelta in which he said that there would be no real uh, opening of society. Gadi Laur on Tavra until the middle of uh, summer. And both of those generated a lot of controversy. And I think the experience of that might be reflected a little in the very tight plan that was unveiled last night and its lack of information, which was almost uh, shocking. I think perhaps there was almost an element of overcompensation. So all we had, in essence, was a timetable uh, for the reopening of schools between now and until just after Easter, and then a slightly more vague promise in relation to a possible uh, easing of restrictions in terms of outdoor meetings, training for underage teams, uh, and perhaps an easing of the five kilometre from home uh, restriction under which we're all labouring at present. But what was significant about those was that there was no uh, detail in relation to how low the figures will have to be, or exactly when that is going to happen. It's going to happen on April the 5th or perhaps sometime after April the 5th. And then when you start looking forward, uh, there was very little in relation to the, all the other sectors of society, uh, from services through to hospitality, uh, through to, uh, to, to transport, all of the things that we would expect to reopen uh, Syriatum as the situation improves. They haven't even gone there uh, as yet, with the exception perhaps of construction, which they do want to open uh, early. So it was a, 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 a plan that was a summary of a plan. Essentially, it, it was most noteworthy, not for the detail, but for the actual absence of detail. I mean, I suppose if some people in government might just, you know, shrug their shoulders or raise their eyebrows at this and say, you know, the media will complain if we don't go out and talk to them. And now they're complaining because Mial Martin was going around giving lots of interviews. But, but you know, they can't win in that regard. But I think our colleague uh, Pat Leahy was writing this week about how the way events have unfolded reveals the kind of the, the lack of confidence at the heart of government at the moment after the shock of what happened in January. And they're probably hoping and praying that as vaccines um, really ramp up, if all goes according to the best, the most optimistic projections, then they can kind of, they can get back in control of, of, of affairs in a way which they don't seem right now. Yeah, um, there's there's um, an expression that, that Connemara fishermen have uh, when there's a sudden 
turn of bad weather that that uh, turns Karak's uh, over into the waves. They say Honigshe and near Adua Aran. And what happened in January uh, means that a wind comes suddenly from the north uh, east. Uh, what happened in January shocked the government to its core. They're expecting a rise, but they're expect, expecting a rise in relation to uh, uh, hundreds of cases rather than thousands of cases. And when the situation began to career out of control in early January, and we were confronted with a situation where there were 8,000 cases being announced per day, uh, the government really began to re-examine uh, its, its own role. And you could see that there was a corresponding drop in confidence in relation to its own authority. And since then, it has done everything according to the rubrics. It has followed uh, the almost slavishly uh, the advice that it has been getting from Neffet. And the point that you make, I think, is, is a very valid one and the one that was made by Pat very eloquently in his uh, opinion piece earlier this week, it does uh, show and manifest that there has been a very noticeable drop or lack of confidence in the government or self-confidence in the government in terms of its uh, approach. And uh, what was also evident last night is that the government is all in in relation to the vaccinations. They're essentially saying we're going to close everything down for as long as possible uh, and once uh, we have enough of the population vaccinated, uh, that's, that will give us the, the, the buffer, that will give us the protection uh, to allow us open up again. And for uh, a situation like happened in late December, early January, never to repeat itself. So everything is now dependent on a, a, a comprehensive vaccine programme. And they're quite ambitious in relation to that, 100,000 per week. Uh, during the course of March, and then 250,000 per week during April. And they're confident that a big majority of the adult population, especially all those over 60 years of age, uh, will have been vaccinated by the end of June, notwithstanding uh, the difficulties that have emerged over the past 24 hours in relation to the availability of the AstraZeneca uh, uh, vaccine. Uh, they are confident that the Johnson & Johnson vaccine uh, will be available by then, uh, which is a one-job uh, 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 vaccine and will pr provide great benefit. So uh, they're essentially hoping that the vaccination supplies uh, will match the expectations of the programme that they've set out for themselves. And indeed, Leo Varadkar, uh, in his capacity for, as Minister for Dreaming of Beer Gardens in the summer, was out this morning and sort of giving a, a little bit more rays of light about should all go to plan, should everything go to plan about what might be possible in June, July, August, that a, a real return to start of a return to normality. Uh, yes. And um, he, he um, again, was putting an awful lot of emphasis on vaccine, as indeed was Michael McGrath, who was also on radio uh, this morning, and they were saying essentially that this is the beacon of hope that if we if we fulfil our vaccination program as we hope to fulfil it, that people can have a summer. But what they haven't been able to tell us, with any degree of confidence, is when the summer will actually start. Will it be the end of May? Will it be the end of June? Will it be the middle of July? And I think a lot will depend on the uh, availability of the vaccine and uh, how successful the rollout of the vaccine programme goes. I don't think that they will take any bold or dramatic move in relation to the reopening of society uh, unless uh, they're confident that a sufficient proportion of the population have been vaccinated. And in, in a sense, I mean, it's, it's a sensible uh, option because the new variant from the UK, B117, is highly transmissible. And uh, all the data that has uh, emerged in the past couple of weeks have shown that you know sixty percent, fifteen, fifteen, seventy percent more transmissible. That uh, close contacts, uh, a quarter of all close contacts uh, of those who have been uh, infected with the virus subsequently go on to catch the virus, and that's compared to ten percent uh, with the old variant. So we can see uh, that it is far more transmissible, and we can also see it in the numbers. The numbers have come down, but they've come down at a far more grudging uh, pace uh, and reluctant pace. Uh, than we saw uh, when the numbers began to drop uh, last summer. I think the other big area of controversy that the government hasn't really done uh, extraordinarily well on is this whole issue of mandatory quarantine. Uh, there is uh, legislation going to be rushed through the Dáil today and tomorrow and through the Shannon next week uh, to introduce mandatory quarantine uh, in hotels for 20 uh, countries. Uh, but the opposition are at one uh, demanding that that list of countries be increased 
And I think the government will find it very difficult uh, to defend not increasing that list, uh, given uh, the spread of these new variants, both from the UK or from the UK and also from South Africa and Brazil, some of which have begun uh, to show themselves in Europe and indeed in Ireland in recent days and in recent weeks. Okay, we'll leave that subject there. We'll be back to it again and again and again, I'm sure. But stick with us. We'll be joined by Claire Daly. You're listening to the Irish Times. Claire Daly, you're very welcome back to the podcast. Thanks a million. Happy to be here. Last time we spoke was at the outset of your successful campaign for the European Parliament. I had to listen back to that podcast. Um, I wasn't just I wasn't looking for things to catch you out on. But I it was knew interesting. you were going to do this anyway. No. Yeah, go on. <laughs> <laughs> it was very interesting to read it. And there were a couple of things uh, um, we might come to. One was that you, you were quite committed to part- continuing to participate in Oireachtas committees, which I imagine would have, would be a real problem these days because of COVID and everything anyway. So I presume that hasn't happened in the way that you would have wanted. Oh, totally not. And actually, I mean, no, all joking aside, I actually was thinking back to that myself and thinking about how when you don't know what it's like here, how you can be, you know, wrong, I suppose, about how things might work out. But obviously, look, COVID has been a, a big disruptor. The Oireachtas committees themselves have been a little bit disrupted anyway. So, but even if it had been normal times, I'm not sure that was the most practical uh, of ideas or ways that we thought we could operate. But but clearly COVID put an end to that in any way. So it's kind of a hypothetical question. But no, we certainly couldn't. We haven't even been in Ireland, to be honest. We've been in, in Belgium pretty much nearly full time because of COVID for the last year. So tell us then, I mean, you've had more than a year and a half now in the in the European Parliament. Tell us, what's the main thing you learned about it that you didn't know before you joined? Oh, so many. Look, it's the most peculiar of institutions I've ever really seen. It's it's a kind of incredible makeup of different people with different backgrounds. It's is incredibly bureaucratic here. It is incredibly slow. Um, but the scale of it, I suppose, is phenomenal. I mean, I've made the point before that, you know, on any one day normally in a Strasbourg plenary, you would have a thousand people doing translations, a thousand people. That's incredible. That wouldn't happen anywhere else in the world. So the scale of the project and the bringing it together of people is pretty huge. Um, you know, we said when we came here, if we try and see, could we change? And if not, we'd burn it. At the moment, probably looking at buying a box of matches in some ways. Uh, that's not to sound despondent. I mean, I think we've been able to very well use the platform in some ways, but there is a huge disconnect between the parliament and the citizens, especially in Ireland, but not just in Ireland. Uh, and I think that is something that if the EU doesn't start addressing the problems that we saw with Brexit and so on are just going to accelerate, you know. How would it address that? Obviously, again, this is a very strange moment where, as you say, you've barely been able to get home yourself for the last year or so. So it's it's it, it's not it's not normal at all. But lots of people have remarked on that deficit between between Brussels and the and the various parts of the EU. I mean, as a political representative for Dublin, how could you, how could your job be done better, and how could the Parliament be more representative of the of the voters who elected you? Well, we can go for like the big things or little small things. Like, for example, we put forward a motion which nearly carried. We we lost it in the parliament by only two votes, which was pretty good. And we're looking at ways to return it to have a sort of an Oireachtas TV in every member state for the European Parliament. Now, that might sound like a snooze fest, but believe it or not, actually, loads of people do watch Oireachtas TV in Ireland. Loads of people used to watch the House of Commons as well when the Brexit debates were going on in Ireland. And it is something that if it was there all the time, citizens would tune in Tune into, I think. There is a huge amount of things going on. I mean, I, I've just come from a meeting where we were interviewing the new executive director of Europol, uh, a French gendarmerie who, you know, was answering questions on counter-terrorism and so on. I've been meeting this afternoon on the EU's influence in the Central African Republic. There's been unbelievable presentations given in terms of the threat of biodiversity to the planet, how we need to change our ways in terms of agriculture, incredible meetings of army generals talking about the militarisation of Europe, uh, which contradicts what the Irish government are saying about Ireland's involvement in PESCO, and none of that gets home at all. Now, we try myself and Nick Wallace have a podcast, I foresee trouble with Daly and Wallace, where we cover all the work that we do, but it's not enough. So I think the idea of a regular... Uh, coverage of the parliament would be a help. But if the parliament is and the EU 
in its three rings, if you like, is going to connect with the citizens, then I think it has to ditch its neoliberal course. The one most striking thing here is how well connected the lobbyists are. They dictate everything that happens here, and yet the citizens are removed from the process. Now, I would have known that before, but to see the scale of it is is a bit frightening. And I think that was best presented by the uh, increased militarism. We have a situation now in the recent budget that the EU has, where we are for the first time directly spending money on militarism from the budget. That's immense. How did that happen? That happened because five years ago, they had a, a, a research group set up, the group of personalities for defense research is what it was called. And they weren't actors and actresses. They were actually the CEOs of the big uh, arms companies. And surprise by surprise, they came up with the idea of how to support uh, European defense research should be to give them loads of money. And basically out of that came the idea of the European Defence Fund. And out of that now, even in these days of a pandemic, we've billions of European citizens money now going to the military industrial complex, many multiples more than is going to uh, health, even though health isn't a member state competence, they want to get into that place. So it's it's we've got to break that. How do you break the chain between the link between the lobbyists who dictate everything and the citizens who just pick up the pieces? And it's not easy. And they've looked at technical fixes, but I, I think the, the economic policies have to be more representative. I mean, I would imagine, and I've got the emails to prove it, that loads of people, including loads of people who love the European Union, were very disappointed at its handling of the vaccine crisis. And we're kind of saying it, it, it doesn't help. And it, it, it certainly didn't, you know. Harry, what do you think of Claire's point there? I mean, it's, you know, it's 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 no secret that, for example, there's only two media organisations, the Irish Times is one of them, that even has a correspondent in Brussels, even though probably there are more decisions being made there that will affect our lives than are being made in Dublin. So that disjunction still remains, despite attempts to make the, the European Parliament more relevant and indeed to give it more power in the overall system. Is there any way around that? I mean, I'm not sure whether the suggestion of a European Parliament TV is really going to fix that. Well, I actually think the idea of EU Parliament TV is a very good one. And I, I take uh, Claire's point fully in relation to Aractus TV. It's not for everybody. And, you know, you, you're not going to set it up like a, a six-part Netflix series at night. But people are interested in it and people will watch it. And it is one way of trying to uh, make uh, what has become a very remote and distant uh, bureaucracy and institution uh, a little bit more meaningful for people living in uh, Ireland. I think that's a good idea. I interviewed Claire Daly when she was on the hustings uh, in advance of her election in 2019. And I was asking her that about, you know, um, how can you make an impact in Brussels as a single individual, uh, not attached to any uh, particular party, you know, in a big parliament of over 600 people uh, talking about events and issues that are remote to, to Irish people. And in fairness to Claire, she has made an impact in Brussels. But then when you look at uh, the situation here in Ireland, I think the pattern for her has followed the pattern of most other MEPs uh, who have gone over from Ireland. They just have failed to to make any headway or traction with the Irish population. And it's not really their fault. It's just that the EU, for most Irish people uh, and for most Irish media, tends to be a turnoff. I don't think uh, any of the correspondents that have been based over in Brussels over the year have lost too much sleep uh, wondering what the Irish MEPs are going to say in the Parliament the following day. And I think that when we tend to think of Brussels, we try, try, try tend to think of the high-level stuff, the European Council, the European Commission, what the executive are doing. And the Parliament becomes a kind of a, a slightly neglected uh, younger sibling uh, who who, uh, who is not going to get any spoils of the inheritance, uh, as it were. And it's a very tough nut uh, to crack. So when I look at Claire Daly's record, I think her record in Europe has been impactful in terms of the issues that she has raised. But then when I look at the traction back at home, it's been minimal. I mean, there's very little reference to what Claire Daly is doing uh, in the Irish media and her uh, status as a representative for Dublin is more or less the same as every other MEP here. It just doesn't really get above the bar of recognition. So do you feel invisible, Claire? No, and I think you, a huge amount of, of really good stuff actually has been raised there by both of you, you know. I mean, I think there is, in some ways, there is a bit of a particular 
problem in Ireland. And Harry is totally right, like that um, the coverage that we do get in Ireland, minimal as it is, is based on the council and the commission and the parliament doesn't get anything. That actually isn't the same in other countries. And there is some things we can do. I mean, it might be a bit mad, but other countries do resource the parliament. And I became a bit of a a star in Bulgaria, and I don't blow my own trumpet, but it's it's an it's an interesting example of how actually other countries cover the parliament a lot more. And the Bulgarian media, and it's the poorest country in the EU, um, have people here all the time. Okay, not now because of COVID, but prior to COVID, they had people sitting in every committee room or at the big ones or following all the events of all the committees. And I was able to use the platform that I had there to raise an issue, which actually was on behalf of Irish people who bought properties in Bulgaria. Big, long story, but there's huge problems with corruption in Bulgaria, well known. And I articulated some of those concerns uh, in the parliament, got to know some other people through that and raised the issue again. And it became a huge sensation in Bulgaria because it tied in with protests that they were having on the streets. I was invited over to address the 100th day of their protests in Sofia uh, and people all over the country jammers. And it's it's a bit of a peculiar one, but it just should. I was able to use that platform to help them to articulate the problems which they were having with their government and so on. I've had a lot of coverage actually in, in The Guardian, in the British press over stuff with data protection and refugees. And it's not about me, but I'm just saying those countries have prioritised the coverage. And I don't think that's necessarily just the fault of independent media outlets either. There is a question of resources. We wrote to uh, Catherine Martin uh, asking that the uh, government would put in a sort of a special unit out here to cover the issues in a lot more detail. I don't think RTE on its own can do that. Uh, I think RT, the coverage that it gives, it's just interested in the council and the commission. I think their coverage is pretty poor, to be honest. Uh, but I accept fully that they don't fully have the resources to do it. And the government should maybe uh, come up with that and have just cover the events, not just even what the Irish MEPs are doing, but what other MEPs are doing as well. Like, because, I mean, you know, I, I feel bad that we're not hitting the buttons at home but there's only so much we can do about that like you know I'll plug our podcast as well people should listen to it but you know we try and do that but uh yeah I mean it's it's a very tough one I think we've got the title for our podcast it's a star in Bulgaria I think that'd be uh that'd be a good, good be one nice for... wouldn't it but no I suppose it makes you think that well you know your time here yeah there are some people listening and uh looking on and it was yeah it was big you know <laughs> And then in relation to yourself and Mick Wallace, who you mentioned, who was also who was also elected, of course, in the, in, in 2019, um, you were independents in the Dáil. Um, you're part of a larger grouping in the parliament. Is that correct? Yeah, we're part of what's now called the left group. It was called GUI NGL. It's rebranded as the left. Um, OK. <laughs> um, yeah, sure, look at this grand. I mean, he asked me before, what group would we go into? And we said, if there weren't any new groups formed, we'd probably end up in GUI. That uh, happened. and There wasn't a new group formed. It's not ideal. None of the groups are, to be honest. There's good and bad in all of them. Uh, some of them are peculiar mixes um, for historic reasons. Uh, but you kind of have to be in a group to kind of get access to committees. You're sort of um, a little bit hamstrung then by the committees you're on. Like I'm on the Civil Liberties Committee, which is the equivalent of the Justice Committee here. Uh, in Ireland. Um, I'm also on security and defence now, but it took me a while. I'm only a, a recent arrival on that. I had to kick someone off it to get on it, um, but also on trade and on uh, transport and transport has been a, a useful one as well. So yeah, we're part of another group, but we get on with people in all the groups. Um, Harry, I mean, I, I have to be honest, I still think that the democratic deficit in the EU is, is possibly the biggest flaw at the heart of the whole enterprise. And I don't see any sign of this problem being cracked in terms of the distribution of power between the sort of three centres of power, or maybe four centres of power if you include the court. Um, the, the the fact that we don't even know really what the political parties are. And as Claire says, if I understand what she's saying right, in some cases they're maybe not dissimilar to things like the technical groups that previously existed in the Dáil, that they're there just in order to allow access rather than having a completely, you know, shared shared vision. All of that goes to saying as well that the EU is still primarily a technocratic institution, it seems to me. Yeah, there's actually a supermarket in there as well amongst the groupings as well, uh, Aldi. Uh, so that's, I mean, that's as much as it means to the Irish population. I mean, if you went out and asked an, uh, an Irish person, 
uh, about the different various political groupings within the European Parliament. Just wouldn't be able to tell you. There's a deficit there, and we spoke about it a little bit earlier. I, I think that there's a concentration of power uh, um, in uh, both the Council and the Commission. So various in, in various treaties over the years, they've promised uh, that the Parliament would be given more power and more status and more of an equal standing in terms of the European project. And that, unfortunately, has proved to be, in the main, lip service. I mean, the Parliament has more power now than it had 20 years ago, but you're talking about power in relative terms. And it's still, uh, um, to 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 uh, excuse the, the slightly uh, rude expression, but it's still the hind teeth uh, when it comes to the whole uh, European project and institution. My difficulty, I don't have as much difficulty with the Council. I mean, at least the Council uh, members have been elected by proxy. They're the national leaders and as such, they represent uh, the population of their particular countries. My difficulty is with the Commission. And the Commission is an executive, a government, uh, but one that hasn't been uh, elected uh, per se, but that wields an extraordinary amount of power. And the difficulty is that anything that the Parliament uh, tries to propose uh, can be dismissed out of hand by the Commission. And the Commission's uh, uh, power extends into every facet of our lives. And some of it has been good. I think some of the uh, innovations in relation to the environment over the years have been very good. But you do want to have something. If something is happening, even if something is beneficial, you need to have democratic accountability. And one of the things that I've found with the, with the uh, European Commission over the years is that there has been a deficit in relation to that accountability. And countless councils and parliaments have promised to, to tackle that issue. And to my eyes, that, that has never actually been achieved. Claire, there was a specific instance, obviously, in relation to the Commission that affected Ireland in recent weeks, which was this um, this move to activate Article 16 of the Northern Ireland Protocol as part of Brexit, which was clearly a terrible mistake, and they had to do a rapid reverse on it. But um, we never really got an answer as to exactly how that happened and why that happened. And in the weeks since, particularly over the last week or so, we've seen rumblings in reports from Brussels that um, there's some disgruntlement there among the um, the technocrats that Ireland isn't being a team player when it comes to implementing the protocol and in dealing with Britain in the post-Brexit world. Is that something that you hear or see about at all over there, that there's a bit of aggro there? No, I mean, we haven't really sensed that as such. I mean, obviously, we were very dissatisfied with the answers from Ursula von der Leyen. Like, she didn't really answer it at all. She just kind of said, oh, yeah, I'm sorry. And we said, well, what are you even sorry for? Like, you haven't even spelt out how you understand the mistake and how you're going to uh, make sure it doesn't happen again. I mean, I think as well, in fairness, uh, the Irish MEPs tried to get together. Uh, Barry Andrews had an initiative where we uh, tried to get everybody on side to write to make sure it didn't happen again. We got a good response on uh, that initiative. I, I haven't sensed that. But I do. Uh, what I have sensed is, you know, a bit of a maybe, despite the way they tried to present it, there's probably a much stronger dissatisfaction with Ursula von der Leyen and her approach than there was previously. And maybe some questions there that they are trying to keep a, a lid on, but a disquiet there with this sort of uh, idea that she runs a very tight ship that maybe doesn't involve the full team, keeps decisions to herself. I, I think that'll come back to, to haunt her a bit. But I mean, look, at there'll always be people who will kind of moan on. I think in fairness, the Irish reps punch probably a bit above their weight, really. Now, you you and Mick Wallace have a book coming out. Uh, I think it's called Coalition of the Unwilling. Uh, when is that out? It's out. <laughs> I'm delighted at the impact it's made on you, Hugh. I know. Uh, look, we, we brought it out before Christmas by just trying to get it out before Christmas. We obviously haven't launched it properly because uh, of COVID. We want to launch it in Ireland. It's a book about um, our experiences, the time we broke into Shannon to search for US military uh, aircraft there. Uh, it recounts the trial of, of that um, case down in, in Shannon, whereby we think we very successfully put the US military on trial during that. So the book is about the court case. It's uh, basically we took a lot of notes at that. Our team did. It's a transcript of the court case. 
It's a history of Ireland's neutrality, and it's also for the first time uh, collected anywhere the WikiLeaks cables in relation to Shannon, which if you had a read of them now, the hair would stand up in your head uh, when you see them all together about what the Americans really think of uh, Ireland. So it's a kind of a, a book in sort of three parts, but we think it's pretty good. And when the COVID restrictions lift, we intend to fully uh, launch that around Ireland, mainly because of the message about the undermining of our, our neutrality, but particularly we want to link that in with the growing militarisation in uh, the European Union, which is absolutely scary. And it's even more scary when you look at the amount of money that they're spending on uh, militarism now, even as they talk about spending uh, more money and healthy, you know, they spent five billion on the EU for health programme, a fra tiny, tiny fraction of the amount they're spending on, on militarisation and border security. I mean, do you think the EU or the people who are running the EU see it as a future superpower? Because it doesn't look like one now. It doesn't, right? And there's all sorts of contradictions, but that's the direction it's going. And, you know, people can say, as, as you know, Michal Martin tried in the last European election, that talk of EU, EU army is nonsense. It actually isn't. And I challenge anybody to go in and look at any of the security and defence meetings of which there are two going on all day today and, and tomorrow, um, two days of it, and look at what they're doing. They are harmonising relations here. I mean, I, it took me six months to get the Ireland's PESCO implementation plan, which I only got last week after a lot of FOI requests and so on. And we see the types of action that Ireland is, is involved in. As part of that, we also see uh, the big arms companies dictating all of Europe's policies. They want to have us to have a strategic sort of understanding of the threats that face Europe. And that's really just been done to justify increased militarism. And you, you see it by the hundreds of lobbyists who are here. It's, it's quite incredible, actually. So that's the direction they're going. There's stops and starts. Obviously, not everybody is on the same page. You know, the French are very active in, in um, Africa. Uh, the Germans want a, an EU army heading in that direction. They definitely want more expenditure there. So do the big French companies. So do the big Italian companies. So it, it stops and starts. We see the Eastern European countries are very hostile to Russia, whereas Germany and France are happy to do business with Russia and talk it up a bit, maybe. Uh, so there are contradictory developments, but there is no doubt when you strip it back and you look at all of the programs that are there, uh, we are going in a much more um, direction of to try to have a more coordinated military response. And Ireland is part of that through the missions that we are involved in. They have six or seven Defence Forces personnel based here in Brussels. When I've raised up questions, is there not a contradiction to them being involved in any of the missions? The um, military people here assure me that the Irish fellows have never had any problem with any of the actions. So <laughs> that's a problem for me, I can tell you. But uh, anyway, that's a work in progress. I mean, you mentioned Russia and you were speaking in the European Parliament last week, I think it was, um, and I think your speech cut through uh, quite a lot. I think it got uh, uh, quite a lot of reaction. A lot of people saw it. I want to just play a clip from what you were saying then. Listening to the relentless Russia phobia in this place, why are people surprised that Russia sees no uh, point in engaging with the EU? I'm as happy as anybody else to stand up for anybody's rights, including Navalny's. But let's be honest about him. He's a vicious, anti-immigrant racist on maybe 4% of the support in rallying hundreds and thousands in cities of millions. Hardly a mass movement. And we wouldn't be discussing him at all if he'd been arrested anywhere else other than in Russia. Meanwhile, Julian Assange has been incarcerated for almost 10 years for exposing US war crimes. We can't mention his name. Tomorrow, Pablo Hassel, a Catalan rapper, is going to prison for his lyrics. Where's the call to sanction Spain? Tomorrow, 62-year-old Claire Grady is going to prison in West Virginia for her role in the non-violent plowshare action against Trident. Where's the demand to break off links with the US or the outcry about the hundreds of people arrested in this city on a Trump protest a week ago? Nowhere, because this isn't about human rights. This is a geopolitical agenda against Russia, fueled by a military-industrial complex who need an enemy to justify their millions. Of course you're right to go to Russia. We should be engaged in dialogue, not war. 
Now, there's uh, quite a lot there, um, Claire. I suppose, first of all, let's say Alexei Navalny, he was poisoned, almost killed by the Russian state, ended up in a coma, was rescued by German doctors, turned around and went straight back into Russia again, which seems pretty remarkable to me anyway, and was promptly rearrested. Um, is that a valid comparison with the 62-year-old woman who's um, going to jail in the United States? Well, for starters, I mean, there isn't evidence to say that it was the Russian state who who poisoned him. There's a view that if they had wanted to, he certainly wouldn't be alive. Uh, I don't know. That has, that link hasn't been there. There could be oligarchs. There could have been a stray agent. I don't know. The Russian state have denied it anyway. Uh, the point is, the comparison was about his arrest. I mean, he organised himself to go back to Russia, accompanied by a full plane load of media. Uh, I actually think the Russians are incredibly stupid to have uh, incarcerated him. Talk about lunacy. I mean, they have given him a platform. He was on 2% support before that. He's now gone up to about 4 4% in terms of the opposition. I think it's utterly crazy. I don't think he should be in prison. Uh, I think they've made a mistake in, in bolstering, actually. The point I was trying to make is that it's incredibly hypocritical for the EU to be organising special debates and criticising the high representative who is a diplomat, after all, who should be visiting our nearest neighbours for... um, And they were criticising them because of the Navalny case and when they don't say anything about other people being in prison uh, for other actions, uh, which are also humanitarian and civil rights cases as well. I mean, the hypocrisy is just nauseating. They were given out about repression in Russia of protesters. There's loads of repression of protesters in Catalonia at the moment, actually, in response to the incarceration of, of that rapper who did go to prison. There's more artists in Spain in jail than there is in Iran. You know, freedom of the press, Julian Assange, for God's sake. Like So the whole debate was being framed in the context that the EU's interests are about protecting human rights and civil rights. And I was pointing out that that's a very partisan approach, that there's a huge undermining of human rights and civil rights within the EU. And we hear nothing about that. And while we're great at lecturing Russia and China and so on, we say nothing to America, who's incarcerated peaceful activists as well. That woman has got a sentence of uh, a couple of years, a longer sentence than Navalny has got. And people in Russia would argue that he's in jail for breaking a law in Russia, you know. So they were the points that I was trying to make, you know. No, I get that. And I think the counter argument and lots of people, you know, you're on the record for many, many years, including in the book about, you know, your um, uh, your protests against militarism and imperialism around the world, particularly from the United States, States and from the West. But um, I mean, I think it's valid to ask even so, I mean, we've had a number of people on, on this podcast over the years, including Bill Browder, who introduced the Magnitsky Act because of the um, what he says is the murder of his colleague, Sergei Magnitsky, in a, in, in a Russian prison. We had Masha Gessen on last year. They had to leave Russia uh, because of uh, the oppression of LGBT people under the Putin regime. And even the, the kind of I was looking through the book and you are highly critical of the United States and European policy. But the, the, any reference to Russia is always framed in the sort of as a, but look at what's happening on the other. So could I ask you, what do you think of Putin's policies towards LGBT people, towards uh, oligarchic criminality, towards abuses of human rights? Well, I mean, there's a couple of things there. And I mean, you really don't need to ask me that question. My track record on these issues goes before me. I have no uh, interest in supporting Putin. I call out abuses in any state where they occur. Of course, I'm opposed to the repression of the LGBTI community in Russia. Of course, I'm opposed to protesters being arrested there. I'm opposed to political opponents being in prison in Russia or anywhere else. But what we try to do is to balance the situation because you never hear that's all we hear here actually is about that. So I, I, I'm, I've never said Russia is brilliant or I think it's great or anything like that. I don't. I've never met a country that's great. There's huge problems in Russia. There's huge inequalities in in uh, there as there are in other countries. So I mean, not and we're not batting or carrying a flag for anybody. I mean, you made the point about the book, and that's a good point. The reason why Russia isn't mentioned in the book is about it's a book of the undermining of Irish neutrality, and Russia isn't doing that. The United States is the one using our air force, our airports every single day and breaching our neutrality allowed by the Irish government. Uh, Russia hasn't done that. And actually, Russia isn't 
around invading any countries around the world. It isn't dropping bombs uh, at the moment. And I think we do have to correct it. It's not comparing uh, like with like. But the book, it doesn't mention Russia because it's, you know, it's about the undermining of Irish neutrality, you know. Harry, you're very quiet there. But you know, the point I'm making is that I'm not saying Russia's a great place or Putin's a great man. Uh, let anybody point to any occasion where I said either of those things. I'm not into great men and I don't think Russia's perfect, but I don't think anywhere is. I don't think they're demons either. They're uh, our neighbours in Europe. They're a hugely important economy. And you know, what was really interesting was I got huge feedback from citizens all over Europe from from that speech who said they were glad to see it because they're sick of the demonization of Russia. And what I found enlightening was I got contact from a number of Irish people who live in Russia, who are married to Russians and so on, who said that when they go home, they can't believe the way Russia is portrayed. Their kids like wonder when they watch the news, why is Russia portrayed like that? Because it doesn't match the reality that they live in Russia. Uh, and I think we have to kind of call that out. Of course, there are problems in Russia. There are huge problems in Bulgaria. There's problems in Poland, in Hungary, in Spain, for God's sake. The French sp- police were battering the, the gilets jaunes off the street. There's big, big problems there. There's problems everywhere. But how do we resolve them? We have to resolve them through dialogue, through and negotiation and so on. And I think ratcheting up sanctions and constantly going on about the Russians isn't a way to do it. I mean, one of the graphic examples to me was, and it's this point about securitization, it came up at one of the security and defense committees. And I was saying, listen, you're trying to marshal the whole EU into a sort of common threat analysis, which is what their military strategic compass is. I said, Russia isn't any threat to Ireland. And this Polish man got apoplectic beside me. This was before COVID. He nearly went mad and started going, that's all right for you to say over there. But what about us here? We were invaded by Russia before. Uh, We need all of this militarism. And my answer to him was, sorry now, but, you know, I fully respect your rights, but we were occupied by Britain for years. Is the answer to that that we should rearm the IRA and, and, you know, stock up the armaments industry in case they come back? No, it isn't. It's to engage in dialogue and diplomacy and demonising Russia and, and China, which is the other one, um, is just not helpful in that. But, but yeah, one of the things that struck me about the speech that uh, Claire made, and I found it an extraordinary speech on many levels, was that she described uh, Alexei Navalny as vicious, anti-immigrant and racist, but made no reference whatsoever to the corrupt, vicious, homophobic, dictatorial, murdering Vladimir Putin. And I'm kind of surprised that uh, Claire has said that there's no evidence in relation to Navalny being poisoned. Anybody who has followed the Bellingcat investigations into what happened to him and what happened to Sergei Skripal and to Yulia Skripal will see uh, that Russian uh, military authorities were actively involved in plots to, uh, to, to poison both. And you have Alexei Navalny, who almost died, who recovered in Berlin, and he could have stayed in safe harbour in Berlin, but in, in, instead of doing that, he went back to Moscow to face the music, and the charges were in relation to him not uh, fulfilling his bail conditions because he happened to be in a coma in Berlin. That was the first charge. Another charge has followed. And this guy could end up, uh, like other enemies of Putin, spending five or ten years in prison in Siberia. So I know the guy has a blemished record, and he has said things in the past which were totally unacceptable. He has had racist, xenophobic and anti-immigrant thing. He's resiled partly from them. But when you look at his record in relation to other areas, Claire, you say he has only 4% support, that he had rallies on the streets. Uh, at the same time, he was railing against corruption. And that, to me, is very similar uh, to what you were doing when you were in Ireland, Relatively small support, railing against corruption, holding street protests. And the, the protests that he's held in relation to corruption have hit home and have been valid in terms of what they've been talking about. So, I mean, my thing in relation to your speech is that you are kind of using moral relativism. You're kind of saying, well, if you think of Russia being bad, what about the America? What about French colonialism? What about the EU? Uh, what about Julian Assange? But... In those instances, the state is not actively trying to assassinate or murder somebody, as had happened with Navalny. And to say that there's no evidence or no real evidence to support a plot against Navalny, I think is uh, is is doing 
uh, offence to the English language, especially when you look at the uh, at the Bellingcat investigation, um, which was very, very comprehensive indeed. Just Well, first of all, I didn't say there was no evidence that he wasn't poisoned. I said there was no evidence that it came from the official, if you like, that it was sanctioned from the top. I actually acknowledged that there could have been state agents uh, involved in it. Absolutely. It could have been the oligarchs as a result of some of his work. And obviously, I'm opposed to anybody being murdered or dealt with in that way. I'm also actually against people being in prison. And I'm fully on the record as saying that I don't believe that he should be in prison and that the Russians made a very big mistake. mistake in that. But I mean, the context, you're drawing a huge amount out. I had one minute to speak. It was, you've got to see it in the context of the entire debate and what everybody else was saying in that as well. And what it was, the context of that debate was that the high representative of the European Union, Joseph Burrell, was being attacked right across the uh, chamber for going on a visit to Russia. And that the reason why he was being attacked was because of the treatment of Navalny. And I was merely pointing out that the concern that was being expressed for Navalny isn't expressed for others. And I mean, I'm flattered that you would compare me to him. And I mean that genuinely because he had much more support than uh, I probably have. And he's engaged in some very good uh, anti-corruption work in in, uh, some ways. But if it had been me in Ireland in that situation, and that's the point, The European Parliament wouldn't be convening an emergency meeting to give out about the high representative about that. They just wouldn't. The reason why that interest was there was because of Russia. And I was trying to point out, because there is a huge amount of hypocrisy here, that some of the people going on about defence of human rights and civil liberties and so on, if they had studied the remarks of Navalny and his uh, Islamophobia, like his his, uh, expressions of hatred against Muslims in particular, are incredibly dangerous as far as... And I'm surprised that some of the people in the parliament who are defending him, who would like to see him maybe at the helm in Russia, might be a bit surprised if they actually read some of the things that he was saying. So I was merely pointing it out. But I did say as well, which you're not saying, I defend his rights. I don't think he should be in prison, but I'm just pointing out that he's not the great civil rights champion that some of the people who spoke before me were attempting to sort of portray. So, I mean, look, it is hard to, you know, say anything in a minute. I actually took a minute and a half and I was trying to do a lot of things, but, you know, you know what I mean? It, it, it is hard, right? but you shouldn't draw things out of that either that aren't there. Yeah, but the, the point, the, the only point that I, I'd have is, is I, 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 maybe say, saying that you have a moat in your eye in relation to America and in relation to Europe is maybe putting it too strongly. But I sometimes think that things should be kind of judged on their own merits and should not always be compared to what America is doing or what Europe is doing. Because in some ways... When you start drawing those things in, it dilutes the actual kernel of the argument that you're trying to make in relation to the issues involved. Because once you start involving what they used to call in the North as whataboutery, that seems to kind of dissipate the whole thing and muddy the waters in relation to the real issues involved. But you see, it isn't because, I mean, I was actually supporting the visit of Burrell and Burrell made it very clear that when he went to Russia, he expressed the opposition of the EU to the incarceration of Navalny. They're on the record before as criticising Russia on issues like LGBT issues. And so they should. And I agree with that, you know. But uh, so I was supporting that call. So, you know, I mean, I just I think the the problem, what I was trying to point out is, is that while we're doing that and from the point of view of the Russians, Let's remember there are huge abuses in Europe as well. And the Russians can turn around and say, listen, lads, who do you think you are? You're waffling on about us, about a fella in jail. There's 10 Catalonian politicians in jail for 10 years for organising a referendum. How dare you say that to us? There's a rapper gone to prison uh, in in, uh, Spain last week for his lyrics, for God's sake. You know what I mean? There's less people in prison in Russia for that. It's not to say that we want anybody in prison anywhere, but, you know, we have to be balanced about this. And how do you get the ear of your nearest neighbours? Not by kind of saying, oh, you know, don't go and visit them, sanction them all, like cut off links, build an army on their wall. We've got to engage with them to improve the way they operate things. And we only do that by acknowledging that we have to improve in the way we do things, including me. Everybody has, you know. Just just the last question on, 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 on this, Claire, and then we leave it. I suppose it's when I see, if, if I look at examples such as um, in, in your book, actually, I think there is a brief reference to uh, to Crimea. 
And it's suggested that that uh, takeover of, of that part of Ukraine by Russia was a secession um, as opposed to an invasion or a takeover by, by Russian military. And equally, I think I saw a quote from, from Mick Wallace where he was talking about the pro-democracy movement in Belarus and describing its leader as a, as, as a pawn of the West. Now, when I look at both those examples... That's pretty much exactly the language and the descriptions of those two situations, which I think the Kremlin would be very, very happy to see. And in some ways, it looks to me like standing on the side of power and oppression rather than on the side of liberation and democracy, which you would have fought for in many other parts of the world. See, I think the issue is, I suppose, like what happens in Russia and who's in power in Russia we would view as the responsibility of the Russian people. And similarly, in other countries around the world, the problem really with the way in which the EU and America deal with issues is based on what is probably, you know, foreign interference really is trying to influence a narrative. I mean, I'm fully in favour of obviously uh, libertarian struggles in countries around the globe and uh, all the rest of it. But, um, you know, the fact of the matter is that Russia isn't going around invading countries per se. There is op opposition movements to Russia. That's absolutely fine. But that's a matter for the people in those countries uh, themselves. It's not for the EU to come in and say which horse to back. Um, you know, I, I'm, I, it probably doesn't really answer your question, but it's not about it's it's about the fact that Russia isn't around the globe invading countries or trying to distort the narrative or put in friendly uh, people to themselves there, the US is. So in that sense, if that's seen to be more pro-Russian, well, I like the fact that Russia doesn't interfere around the globe in the same way uh, as the US does. Well, except that it is invading countries. It invaded the Ukraine. It invaded Georgia. It has troops in Syria, as the Americans have. You're very critical of the American involvement in Syria. What about well, the, the Russian difference involvement in is, is that the Syrian government invited Russians in. And under international law, if you're invited into a country, that's not actually the same as uh, invading it. So it is different. Like, I mean, NATO has positioned all its, all its bases on... Russia's borders. You know, the, the Russians haven't put all their bases on the Canadian border and ratcheted up that tension. It's not helpful when this dialogue is on. I want all the people in the former USSR states to live harmoniously with each other, with Russia, with the whole lot of them, you know, but they can only kind of resolve that without the interference of the militarism on, on their border and that sort of interfering narrative. I just don't think it's helpful. And I suppose the reason why we have to make the point here is because the other narrative is so prevailing. It's just totally one-sided all the time, you know. They don't allow another view. And and, and it, it's a bit mad because in some ways you say, why are we spending so much time and discussing issues outside the EU when there's such a deficit in terms of inside the EU? And that's one of the hypo hypocrisies that we see is that a huge amount of the time is spent lecturing other countries outside the EU and we don't spend any time about looking at the problems inside the EU. Can I just make a very quick point there? I mean, I, I don't know if I fully accept that argument, uh, Claire, that we don't, we ignore uh, the situation that has been ongoing in Catalonia. You know, there, the EU and certain countries within the EU have adopted positions, but that hasn't prevented others from taking very strident views in relation to what Spain has done in Catalonia and the excesses of the Spanish Supreme Court and the Spanish government in clamping down on those who have looked for, for independence. You know, you talked about Navalny, if it happened anywhere else in the world, uh, it wouldn't have generated the same headlines. I don't know if I accept that argument. If we look at what happened with, uh, with Khashoggi in Turkey and the, 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 um, the, the participation of Mohammed bin Salman and the Saudi authorities in that, that generated worldwide outrage, condemnation uh, as well. And Saudi Arabia uh, is one of those countries that is seen almost as a, a proxy or an ally uh, for some of the, the, the big Western powers. And th that didn't uh, save them from some, some, some very strong co condemnation. So it's not, it doesn't, it's, it's a two-way street. It doesn't go in a black and white way that, that we're, we're all giving out about poor old Russia uh, while defending egregious practices everywhere else. I, I think I think I think it's it's far more democratic than that in relation to the way 
that people engage with excesses and injustices wherever they happen. And my belief is that all of them have to be looked at according to their own lights. I think when you start comparing, that's when you start muddying the waters. No, but you see, you're not, I mean, that's just not true what you've said about Catalonia. The official position of the European Commission and in all European debates is that that it is an independent matter for Spain. And I'm not talking about Catalan independence because that's none of my business. That's up to them. I'm talking about people being in prison, about the curtailment of the protests, about the rappers and so on. An individual matter for Spain is what's been said. And people have been actually shot down for raising the issue here. And that is repeated in for every single other member state. We have the same problems in Bulgaria where the ruling power is very well connected here in, in here in the European Parliament and in EU institutions and they're rampant and a well-documented corruption has been turned a blind eye to. That's been a massive cost. And Khashoggi, for God's sake, the man was caught up in a bag in an embassy. Like, you know, it was, you know, everybody is going to give out about that. I'm not saying... My comments in the Parliament, and maybe this is a difficult, have to be seen in the context of the work of the Parliament. And I appreciate very much that she can't be there listening to all the stuff that we listen to morning, noon and night, lucky in some ways, like, you know, but it comes off the back of discussions in various committees and various policy documents that are absolutely loaded all the time in these issues. So I'm not saying, obviously we have and on loads of civil rights issues, we support the, the parliament where we don't do that. Do you know what I mean? There's stuff in where we don't say, oh, but look what's happening here. There's loads of them. And we often pick countries for that. But I do think I have a responsibility to say to the EU, while it's very nice that you're passing commentary on other countries and that, and that, you know, that's fine. We have to start looking at our own house as well. Like, or it's, it's just not credible. If we don't do that. And I think, you know, I suppose a lot of what we've talked about here is we're taking lines out of speeches and stuff and a narrative. But you have to see it in the bigger context as well. You know, and I, I, I stand over the fact that the EU has a problem and there is an almighty, um, you know, Russian phobia. There just is. And, you know, maybe you're saying we correct it too much, but I would hope not. I've never been on the record as saying, you know, I support any of the initiatives being done by the Putin government of no particular, you know, obviously for issues which are blatantly appalling, like LGBTI repression and so on, you know, are more obvious than others. But, you know, we call them out wherever they are. Can I bring things back a bit, bit closer to home for, for a final question, Claire, if you wouldn't mind. I mean, you made a reference to uh, the demonstration in, in Belgium, which I think was was against COVID-related restrictions, that, that demonstration. Am I right in saying that? Yeah, I'm not even sure. And I don't know what I was saying. I just, I, had heard, I think it might have been, you know, I, I'm not sure what it, it was just, it was on the head there were hundreds of people arrested, you know? Yeah. Because I'm, I'm interested in getting your view. You're obviously right at the heart of Europe and across all the various countries of the EU. There are various restrictions, but uh, what they all have in common is they, they, they impose requirements and limit the freedoms of citizens of those countries in ways that might have been unimaginable only a couple of years ago. And, you know, various people have various kinds of concerns about, about that. I mean, what, what do you think of those kinds of issues? Do, do any of those concern you? Of course they do. And they've been a, a huge topic of discussion on the Civil Liberties Committee uh, here in the Parliament, Fundamental Rights. I was actually the rapporteur for the Parliament for Fundamental Rights for the last year. And these issues are, are huge. So they need to be monitored in terms of the way borders were shut in response to uh, COVID has been a huge challenge uh, to the EU. You know, free movement is, is, where, is what the project was built on and it's had to be curtailed. The prevalent view and the legal view is that civil rights and democratic rights can be curtailed in the event of an overriding public concern, such as a public health emergency. And certainly any of the measures that have been taken, in my opinion, have been within those confines so that they haven't overstepped the mark uh, in that they've been necessary to protect public health. But you need a legitimate reason like that in order to um, do the restricting of, of the rights that have been done. But I think they've and they need to be proportionate. They need to be non-discriminatory. And I think to a great extent they have been. I haven't seen any evidence where, you know, the curtailment was done to discriminate against a, a minority, for example, or a particular type of people or anything like that. So if they're not non-discriminatory, if they're proportionate, then if they're in because of a higher 
reason or threat, then we have to do that. And a public health emergency is, of course, uh, a bigger threat and, and needs to be taken into account of that. So, but, but rest assured, it's something that's totally monitored all the time because we do have to be careful. We do have to be careful about the, the use of big data, how, how European citizens' data has been uh, used and abused at the moment is a huge uh, topic as well. So protecting those rights is, is enormous. And it's really sad because we had been hoping to do a project with the Commission back at home because I was the rapporteur about the Charter of Fundamental Rights. So many rights are actually legally enforceable and I'd love to see some of them challenged in Ireland in terms of uh, some of those issues. But again, with COVID, we haven't been able to do that, but hopefully we'd be, you know, we might get a chance in the next couple of months. Claire, thanks very much indeed for coming on today. Thanks, Melissa. And that's it for today. Thanks to Claire and to Harry. Thanks also to our producer, Declan Conlon. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. We're always very pleased to hear from you. Uh, But until the next time, thanks very much indeed for listening.